0: All right. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, if you're visiting, really glad you're here. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're finishing chapter six today. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. If uh, if you're new to to this church, and you've been to others, um, what is maybe a little bit different about us, or maybe you've been to churches like this, but what we do for our sermon series, we don't have. Uh, you know, topics that we group our sermons around, we just go through books of the Bible uh, or large parts of books of the Bible. Um, We just read straight through it. We don't jump all over the place. We don't skip over anything uh, because we believe the Bible is God's word. Um, And that's what the apostle Paul says in second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So even though scripture is recorded through human authors, it's not originated from human thoughts, but the Holy Spirit works through the human authors to write down the words of God himself. And so the Bible carries God's authority because it is God's word. So we view scripture as the highest authority in our lives uh, because it's from God's word that we get to understand what his will is. Uh, We believe it is sufficient to teach us everything we need to know in order to live a godly life. It's not sufficient for like all of life because like you can't learn really math from it or like American history or chemistry or all those things. So like we're not advocates of like you don't need School or other educated like all you need is bible like there's other good stuff out there, um, but everything you need to to know to live a godly life, um, it's sufficient to guide us through life's difficulties. So we get to know what would God have me do at this point in my life, in this situation, with this opportunity. How can I live in a way that's pleasing to God? And I'm reminded of that every single week, just how useful and how good the Bible is at guiding us through, through everything. But this week, it became a little bit more poignant uh, than, than in some others, because Jesus teaches on something that is fairly prominent in the minds of, of many people and in their lives, where he starts dealing with anxiety. Um, it's interesting how things change, so like 15 years ago and further back, when it came to things like, uh, like mental health problems, no one talked about their mental health problems. Like, we all shoved it down, ignored it, didn't talk about it, and like, if you saw a therapist, you didn't want anyone to know because they would like, tease you or they'd think you're crazy. Even like this last winter, I was watching um, the Santa Claus, that Tim Allen movie, is from like 30 years ago. And that's like a big joke in it, that like the other guy is a therapist, and so like he just gets teased relentlessly about that the whole time. So like that's how it used to be. It's so different now, where we are just very upfront about um, any kind of mental health problems that we might be experiencing. We get like mental health days off of work, and, and like no one is really ashamed to talk about it. Their their therapist like it's always like yeah like I have go to therapy three times a week how many days are you doing, um, which is good I think it's good that it's not like shut down and suppressed and uh, it's great that we can talk about these things and, and try and be more healthy it does feel like part of it is is an over like uh, pendulum shift a little bit where um, like there's there's a lot of good stuff but there's a lot of like you know, on social media, people will build entire platforms on coaching people through mental health stuff, but they're not, like, trained or accredited. (laughs) They're just people with opinions, and, like, there's so much information that's being pumped out. Not all of it is good information. Not all of it is good strategies, and so we are, you know, we're in a position where we get God's word on this to give us some guidance and and know, here's here's how God would have you uh, think about and deal with your anxiety. So that's what we get into today. Before we really jump into it, I just wanna mention one thing, because this often comes up in this conversation, and many of you, I believe, have at some point in your life given or received a piece of advice that I don't think is helpful or entirely correct, which is to say, you just need more faith, if you had more faith, you wouldn't deal with anxiety. Um, I don't think that's helpful, and I don't think it's entirely correct, because part of what you're saying in that advice is is like it's your fault, (laughs) like your faith isn't strong enough, and if you had stronger faith, you wouldn't be dealing with this, which is a good way to give someone more anxiety. (laughs) You know, like it feeds into this bad cycle where there's the initial anxiety And then they're told, well, that's your fault, and you're not doing a good enough job, and now there's secondary anxiety about having anxiety. And then there's anxiety about that, and it just builds, and it becomes worse and worse. Um, What we're going to see in what Jesus says about anxiety is faith is not irrelevant to anxiety, and in fact, it can be a tremendous help, but it we shouldn't look at it as, like, the cure for anxiety. So, uh, faith gives you something solid you can hold on to. It's kind of like an anchor, okay? Um, An anchor does not make the storm go away. It doesn't change the circumstances of the choppy water and the high winds. But it does keep you from drifting off further into it. Does that make sense? That's how I want us to think about faith and the role it plays with anxiety. It's, it's not a cure. It doesn't um, change the things that y- it, you might be worried about, but it gives you stability, and it keeps you from getting lost further and deeper into your anxieties. So, let's get into it. Matthew 6, verse 25, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We get a a little bit of a glimpse here into some of the things that might have been the primary worries of people in, uh, the people he's talking to, first century people, in Israel, and I don't know if you know this, but first century Israel and 21st century America, they're kind of different. There's like a big wealth gap there. Life looked a lot different. And I know, I know, Ryan, I thought that if God loves you, he makes you super wealthy and your life really easy. So what, does he hate Israel? No. Um, There is, there's, there's, there's a prominent false teaching within Christianity known as the prosperity gospel. But it really gets a grip on a lot of people and that's one of the things that it teaches that if God loves you, he's going to bless you with material wealth, material prosperity, and make your life amazing. And so that's kind of an indicator you can look at to see how much God loves you and that's, that's not correct. Um, before Jesus, when the people of God were the nation of Israel, the people that he chose, and that he, he loved in a, a special and particular way, and he gave them promises that, uh, that were special and particular to them. There are times in their history when they are blessed with immense wealth, and there are times when it was all taken away. Uh, and it doesn't mean that, that you know, God didn't care about them or didn't have plans for them. There's just things that, that happened. And so back to comparing first century Israel, and the things they might have been worried about with us, we have far greater access to and availability of, um, you know, food, clean water, medicine, clothing, just all kind of basic life necessities that you, like the basic needs of life. Shelter, our shelters are better than theirs were. Um, We have so much food that our grocery stores throw out a lot of it. Like, we have more than we know what to do with. Uh, They didn't have that kind of food security. I'm not saying they were all walking around in a state of starvation, but there was less available. They had to work more for it. It didn't last as long. Um, We have more clothes than we know what to do with. It's annoying how many clothes we have. We have so many clothes that, that you probably do what I do every few years, which is you take the ones that you haven't worn in a while and you put them in a trash bag and you put them in your car and you're going to take them to Goodwill or to like a clothing drop off somewhere and then you forget about it and it's in there for like six months. But then you finally do it. And then a few years later you do the same thing because we have so many. Um, most of the people Jesus is talking to had like one daily outfit. And so it makes sense the way that their life was, their anxiety would center on some of these things, these basic human need things that weren't as secure for them as they are for us. Um, but that doesn't mean that our anxiety is that different from theirs. Like human, uh, human desire and fear and worry, like they're all really around the same things. It just looks a little bit different for us. And so we get anxiety about things like our, our finances. Uh, paying the bills, rising costs, retirement, job security, things like that. And, uh, you know, we, we get anxiety about uh, things like death. And, and Jesus even brings that one up. W- which of you by worrying can add a, a, an hour to a span of life? Um, a lot of it is the same. There, w- what I think the big difference is, is because of our relative affluence, our minds are freed up a little bit to take some of the things that would have been smaller worries for them and their bigger worries for us, as just a little bit inverted. Where we have the basic things that are pretty set, and that gives our, our minds the space to invent like, bigger worries of other things, like social anxiety. Like, do people, what do they think of me? Like, does that person hate me or not? Um, we, we worry about you know, whether I'm good enough or not. And I'm sure they had those too. It's just like when your biggest problem is, am I going to have food tomorrow? You'd care a little bit less about, like, what does that person think of me? You know what I mean? And so those are bigger for us, but, but they're really all pretty similar. Um, how should we deal with it? What does Jesus say? How is God's word guiding us to deal with our anxiety? Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. There it is. You guys good? When you start getting anxious, what you need to do is just stop, and then you won't be anxious. And then you won't have any problems. Like, we can all do that, right? We can all go home, enjoy our Father's Day. No, no. When it comes to interpreting scripture, context is always very important. And the word, therefore, is never a word you should ignore. It means this thing that just happened before, was established before, leads into the thing that we're talking about now. And the thing that Jesus is talking about before that we looked at in our teaching last week, just one a little further up in Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about treasure. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on the earth where you can lose them. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven that is eternally secure. And the treasure in heaven is God himself and the relationship that you have with him, that he is the creator, he's the source of everything on the earth. And you can know today, you can know that God loves you, that you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're redeemed. You have the promise that Jesus is gonna make all things new those are things that you can have this treasure today. Those can be in place in your life and you are, you're, you're solid in that. And so, so here is how Jesus moves from that into here. Because you have this incredible, wonderful, eternally secure treasure in heaven, like the biggest thing in your life is taken care of by God for you. Because that's true, you don't need to exhaust yourself worrying about things that are much smaller than that. That's the, the flow of how Jesus moves into this. And and remember, you know, faith is being like an anchor. Faith is not about um, changing or or even necessarily influencing the things that you're worried about. It's giving you something solid to hold on to in the midst of those things that you're worried about. So, in what we just read in Matthew 6, there are four anchoring truths Jesus gives us, that when we put them all together, form a solid anchor that help us to, uh, to, to be uh, stable and secure and not drift out into you know, further, darker, deeper waters in, in our minds and our own worries. And so, two of those truths are about God. Two of those truths are about you. The two truths about God relate to who he is and what he can do. Um, First, God is a creator who loves his creation. He is a creator who loves his creation. He's invested in his creation. He cares about it. It's, It's the work of his hands. It's not like he's made all of his creation and then he just kind of abandons it, and then is thinking about other things, bigger and better things, and it's not important to him anymore. It's so important to him. He deeply loves and cares about his creation. He has a purpose for it. He's not just going to let it suffer and degrade and not, uh, not, not think about that, not uh, have any concern about that. The second truth about God, relating to what he can do, he takes care of the things that he loves. He is able to provide and protect and heal and sustain the things that he has made, the things that he loves. He wants to take care of his creation, and he can do it. And to point us to to the reality of these truths, Jesus gives us these examples. And the examples he gives are of things that are not very consequential for us, right? The, The birds and the flowers. Like, you can overlook those things easily, and, and not give a second thought to the birds, and not give a second thought to the flowers, but he says, look at the birds. He says, in order to feed themselves, the birds aren't doing the work that we do, right? They're not planting the seeds, pulling the weeds, watering the fields, harvesting, gathering. Like, they don't have to do any of that. They don't have to go to their, their bird job and, and make their bird money to put food on their bird table to take care of their bird wives and bird kids God is making the food available for them, and they don't have to do all the things that we do. And you might, and you probably do, just overlook most of the birds that you see in your life. You don't even think about them. God's not overlooking them. They, they matter to God. He takes care of them. He's providing for them. Look at the flowers of the field, the lilies of the field. They don't have to work to sew their own clothes and spin their own clothes. They're not working in textiles. They don't have to do anything, and yet they are clothed in a greater beauty than King Solomon, the, the, the wealthiest king from Israel's history. God doesn't overlook the flowers. They, they matter to him. He cares about them, and he clothes them in this great beauty. I love this verse in uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's about Jesus, but it's also about God's relationship to his creation and what he's doing for it. So it says this, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That part there, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is the creator. He's the source of everything. Nothing would exist apart from him making it exist. And God doesn't hate his creation. He loves his creation. It's important to him. He's invested in it, and he works to take care of the things that he's made, the things that he loves. He's active in doing that. Two anchoring truths about God. He is a creator who loves his creation, and he takes care of the things that he loves. Now, those two things by themselves would not make the most solid anchor for you to hold on to in the midst of your, your own anxieties. Um, we need, next, the two truths that Jesus gives about us. And so the, the first one, the first truth Jesus gives about you is that there are some things that are simply beyond your control to do. There are some things that are just outside of your control outside of your ability, you can't do anything about it. That was verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Right? You can't extend your life. You can't control the the markets. You can't control the job markets. You, You can't cure every single illness and injury. There are some that you just can't do anything about. You can't control people. You can't control what they're gonna do or what they're gonna think or what they're gonna want. As much as you would want to do that, there are some things that are simply beyond you, beyond your ability, they are out of your hands. There are things that are in your ability, and the things that are in your ability to do, like you should do everything you can to make a bad situation better, but there are so many things beyond your control And those are the things that you worry too much about. Those are the things you worry so much about because you can't do anything about them. And Jesus says worrying isn't going to change anything. What happens with anxiety is we drown ourselves in dark thoughts about things we have no control over. What we need tie it all together is the, the second angering, anchoring truth about you that Jesus gives. We take all four of these together, and that's what shows us how faith can be so helpful in the midst of our worries. The, the second anchoring truth about you, the fourth one, is that you are exceedingly valuable to God. And I'm choosing that word carefully, exceedingly valuable. You are more valuable to God than anything else in the rest of his creation. That's what Jesus says. Are you not of much more value than these other things that God loves and he cares for and he provides for? This one, uh, this one people may have difficulty with in two ways when it comes to self-worth. Even if you have like, a good, healthy view of your own self-worth, there are two ways that you might lean that are not good ways to think about your self-worth. One is you accept this too easily, and you go, yeah, I do matter more than anything else in all creation. I matter more than anyone else. Um, and that's, that's not right. Uh, and if you think, well, didn't you just say that, Ryan? No. I did not just say that. Pay attention. Um, I said you have more value than anything else in all of creation uh, speaking to you as a human being. I'm not speaking to you personally and everyone else here is just witnessing me talk to you. That would be weird. When I say you have more value than anything else in all creation, I'm talking about human beings that God has created. I'm speaking to all of us as the people that God has created us to be we have more value than anything else in all of creation. You don't matter more than other people do. That is not a good thing. Don't don't think like that. The other problem people have when it comes to self-worth is they get to a spot where they think, I'm worthless. I'm a screw-up. I don't matter to anyone. All I do is make mistakes. My life is just one big failure after another. And so my life holds very little value or meaning or worth. And if that's you, you probably find yourself getting to a place where you think thoughts that sound like, um, why would God care for me? Why would God love me? How could he love me? How could he accept me? But you have to listen to him. You have to listen to what Jesus says. Do you think Jesus is a liar? Are you not of much more value than that? Why does Jesus think that we're so valuable? Why do you have more value than anything else in all creation? Your value is not related to, and it's not dependent on what you do, all right? Your, your value does not come from your performance, so you don't have to try to live Uh, the best life possible or or achieve a certain standard in order to prove your worth. Right? Your worth doesn't come from the things that you do. That's a pit that people fall into. Your value comes from what God has given you and what he's created you to be. And so in Genesis, in chapter one, the creation on the sixth day, the creation of humans, we read this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You're made in the image of God. You're made to be a reflection of who God is in a way that nothing else is. Therefore, because you carry his image, you have infinite dignity, worth, and value as a human being, every human life does. No matter the, the ways that you're different from, from other people, you know, whether you're extremely smart or very not smart, you ha- see how smart I am, I know how to say not smart in big words, uh, you're, you're, you have infinite dignity, worth, and value. Whether you are the richest person on earth or the poorest person, whether you are old or young or a man or a woman or, uh, or this color or that, unborn or on your deathbed, every human life is infinitely valuable because it's made in God's image, healthy or sick. That doctrine, by the way, if you just look at history, even if you're not a Christian, if you're a totally secular person, that doctrine, the image of God, that is the place that the concept of human rights was born from, that every human being has rights and there's not a hierarchy of some are more valuable than others. Like that whole thing comes from this doctrine right here. Being made in the image of God makes you exceedingly valuable. But it's not the only thing that makes you as valuable as you are, um, what, what determines the worth of something is how much you're willing to pay in order to get it, right? And so if you're buying pants, and pants are sixty dollars, because of course they are, uh, or more expensive, I don't know, it's been a while since I bought pants, but just say, if you pay sixty dollars for it, that's what they're worth to you. And if you're not willing to, then they're worth less than that to you. Even with subjective things like art, you know, like you might be willing to pay no more than $50 for a painting, and yet someone else would be willing to pay $5 million, because that's how art works. And probably not, like there's probably more that goes into it a little bit, but whatever it is that you're willing to pay, that is how much you are deeming this thing is worth to you. What does God pay in order to get you? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You are part of that. You're in that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his only son for you. For those of you who are parents, as, is there anything in life that you want so badly you would exchange your firstborn for? I hope not. It's not a direct comparison. It's a little bit of a different situation. But he values you so much, he sends his, his only son in order to get you. What does Jesus pay for you? In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the, uh, the leaders, the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he's encouraging them in their role to take care of the church. And he says this in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And the church, that's people. When the Bible says church, it's always talking about the people who've been saved by Jesus, who are loved by Jesus, who follow Jesus. Jesus cares about his people so much. He shed his blood on the cross in order to obtain them. It's not a mystery why people get confused and stumble over uh, the idea that God really loves you, he's really going to forgive you, and that's a free gift It's not something that you earn. It's not something you have to achieve. All right, you don't add to it. It's not a mystery why people stumble over that because we know that we've sinned against him. We know what we've done. Like the the prodigal son, I'm not gonna read it, but what happens in the prodigal son is this guy goes to his father and he asks for his share of the inheritance, which is the height of disrespect, and I can't really imagine a more painful thing a child could say to their parent. I want the stuff I should get from you when you die. I don't love you or care about you. Your life means nothing to me. Whether you live or die, I just want your things. That's what the prodigal son says. That is what we in our sin have said to God. You don't matter to me, God. I don't care about you. I don't want to listen to the things you have to say. I don't care about a relationship with you. I want this world that you've created. I want this life that you've given me. I want to enjoy all the things that you've made and gifted me with. I want all your stuff. I just don't want you. When the prodigal son returns, he returns because things didn't go well for him. And on his way back, he's forming a plan. He says, maybe if I go back to my father's house, he'll let me work as a servant in the house, and at least then I'll have something to eat. And while he's still a long way off, his father sees him, and he runs out and embraces him and puts a ring on his finger and throws a party to celebrate that his son has returned to him, the son who, who, who asked for the inheritance, who told him, your life means nothing to me. Look at what God has given for you. Look at how far he's willing to go. Look at what he's actually done, what he's actually paid. He gave his son Jesus. Jesus gave his blood, his life at the cross. And even here, some people will go, well, yeah, like he can forgive some people, but he can't forgive me. (laughs) You know, Jesus can forgive others. I am a worse sinner than other sinners. And if you find yourself getting there I think what you need to do is read the Bible and look at the people who are in it. Look at the Apostle Paul. He's murdering Christians because they're Christians, because they worship Jesus and believe that he's Lord. He is making sure that they are put to death, and yet Jesus seeks him out, intervenes, saves him, changes his heart, changes his life, forgives him, gives him hope. Look at the thief on the cross or the woman at the well or drunk Noah, adulterous murderer David, deceitful Jacob, prideful Peter, traitorous tax collector Matthew. All these people. And yet Jesus goes to them, he extends them grace, he brings them in. You're a sinner, just like we're all sinners. You're a sinner. You're not a special sinner. Jesus loves sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he's here. He's the creator. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything in you, and he still came for you. You're a failure, just like we're all failures. You're not a, a special failure. Jesus saves people who fail to save themselves. God loves his creation. He takes care of it. There are things that are beyond your control and ability to do, but you are so exceedingly valuable to God. And the things that are beyond your ability, nothing is beyond his. He loves you. He cares for you. He is for you. Romans 8. Verse 31, Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This attitude, this spirit that wrote these verses, this is what it looks like to use your faith as an anchor. Even when, even when uh, things are not going well, okay? You're, you're, like, it's easy to think this when life is easy and great, and you're like, yes, of course, who could be against me? But then you get to the part of your life where it does look like and feel like there are things that are against you. Things are falling apart. There's nothing you can really do about it. And you start having those thoughts, God, wh- where are you? Do you still care about me? Are you still there for me? Why are you letting this happen? thinking those things because everything you see and feel and experience in your life are just telling you it's not going well. Those things that you are seeing and feeling and experiencing, those are not the only things that you could look at in that moment. You can can open God's word and you can see Jesus. You can see him there on the cross for you. Hanging there because he loves you because he wants you, he wants to rescue you from the deepest depths of your sin, the hopelessness that you could never cleanse yourself of these things, you could never save yourself. And he went there and poured himself out and suffered in your place so that he could have you forever. He wants to give you eternal security you can see jesus you can see the cross you can see god's promises you can no matter what is going on in your life if you're a follower of jesus you can look at something big that you know is true that's what you do in the middle of that storm when 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 all your thoughts are dark and full of worry you look at something bigger that you know is true, something solid you can stand on. Jesus loves me. He cares about me. He went to the cross for me. All things are in his hands. I can trust him. I know he's good. I know he's for me. That's what it means to use your faith as an anchor, to always be able to look at Jesus Because yeah, you get to a low point and you think like, how could I possibly be here? But you look at the cross and you realize, well, Jesus went even further. He experienced more. He didn't abandon me at the worst spot I could possibly be in. He's not abandoning me now. Now, this is not all Jesus has to say about anxiety. So this is you're know you experiencing and feeling these anxieties, he also tells us what we should do to minimize the potential for these anxieties in the first place. And so, continuing on, and this is getting to the end of Matthew 6, in verse 31, Jesus says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Once again, therefore, this time it is because you are so exceedingly valuable to God and you know he takes care of the things that he loves, and you know he can do things that you aren't able to do for yourself. Don't focus on these smaller things that you're worried about first. That God knows about those, he knows that you need them, he cares about you. But if you put those things first in your list of priorities, that is how they say putting the cart in front of the horse, which is not a good method. Horses are much better pullers than they are pushers. Jesus says you need to get your priorities right. C.S. Lewis has my favorite quote on priorities. He says, um, put first things first and second things are thrown in. Put second things first and you lose both first and second things. The priority, the first thing, the bigger thing is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when you do that, all the other things will be added they're going to be taken care of they're going to follow along when you focus on god and you serve him and you seek his will and you want to build his kingdom you want to grow closer to him you want to grow in righteousness you want to put your sin to death you want to love people and serve people all the other things are going to be added along as you're focused on those things but if you if you do it in reverse order if you, put the other things first, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness will not naturally happen along the way. You might tell yourself that'll happen along the way. It's not going to happen along the way, right? Maybe, maybe these thoughts feel uh, or sound familiar to you where you go, well, you know, once I'm done with school, then I'll get real serious about God. Like, I'm in school now, I'm young now, I just want to have fun now, I want to, I uh, you know, do what I can now, and then when I'm out of it, that'll be the time that I get serious about God. Or when I really get established in my career, once that's taken care of, then I'll start getting serious about God. You know, once I've gotten married and, and we've started a family, that sounds like a good time. That'll be the time that I start getting serious about God. You know, as soon as we've gotten to this place in our lives, as soon as we've accomplished that, as soon as I've cleaned myself up and changed these things about myself, once I've done these things first, then I can finally start getting serious about God. You put all these other things first. When you do that, your faith is never naturally going to follow. And now what happens is you're dealing with these things first, but you're dealing with them totally on your own. You have to do it all on your own. You you can only trust yourself. You can only trust your own ability and power to to deal with these things because you don't have God. You don't have a close relationship with Him. You don't have the assurances that He He loves you and He's with you and He's for you. You don't have those promises. You have to do it all on your own and that's going to make it much harder to deal with those things, and you're not ever going to get to the point, if that's the way you keep your life structured, you're not gonna get to the point where you finally do seek God, uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm gonna end today with a botched retelling of a classic illustration that everyone older than the age of 25 once read this on an email chain. If you're younger than 25, you found it some other way. Everyone's seen this. And so uh, it's, it's an illustration given by a college professor and uh, to his class, he has a big empty cup and he puts some golf balls in it. And he says, you know, class, is the cup full? And they go, yep, can't fit any more golf balls in there. And he pulls out some marbles and he puts the marbles in and he shakes it and they fill in the empty space. And then he goes, all right, class, is the cup full now? And they go, yeah, can't fit any more marbles in there. Then he takes out some sand and he pours in the sand and shakes it in and now it's all totally filled. He goes, all right, class, is it full now? And they go, well, you got us the first two times, but yeah, now it's definitely full. This is probably the way it was written. Uh, And then he takes out a cup of coffee and he pours the cup of coffee in and now it's finally full, right? And then he tries to do it in the reverse order. He puts everything in, in reverse and at the end of it, you know, not even all the marbles are fitting in, let alone none of the golf balls can get in. And, you know, the, the point of the illustration, he like goes on about it, the big things, like family and whatever else, is, uh, is really important. When you focus on the smaller things first, you don't have room for the bigger things. When you focus on the bigger things, the smaller things are able to follow focus on the big, bigger things first, the most important, the most consequential. There's a God who loves you. There's a Savior who gave himself for you. You can know him. You have the opportunity to know him. You can grow closer to him. You can walk with him have you made a decision to put your trust in him, to allow him to do for you the things you can't do for yourself, that his work on the cross is sufficient for your salvation, that he has you eternally secure. He can forgive you. He can heal you. He can make you whole. He can give your life purpose. It's what you've been created for. Do you have that in place? Have you made that decision? If you haven't, maybe today, maybe today you would make that decision. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Even if you've made that decision, it doesn't mean that that's all taken care of and you don't have to think about it anymore. It's still the priority of your life. Loving God, loving your neighbor, making disciples, serving God, building his kingdom. Some of you here today are struggling with anxiety. Everyone has something they feel anxious about at some point. How are your priorities? How is your life structured? What are the things that you are committed to first before anything else? And once that thing is taken care of, you can turn your mind and attention to the other thing. What is first priority in your life? Is it him? The God who feeds the the birds and and clothes the flowers. He feeds us with the the bread of life in his own son. He clothes us in righteousness. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Do you need to adjust your priorities? And when you're in the midst of your anxieties and your worries, what do you do? Wh- where does your mind go? Where can you take your mind? You can turn to God in faith, you can turn to Jesus in faith. And he can become for you the anchor that keeps you from drifting further and deeper into those dark thoughts and, and deep worries. God is a creator who loves his creation. He takes care of the things that he loves. There are things you can't do. There's nothing he can't do. And you are exceedingly valuable to him. Let me pray for us.